morning. It's good to see you guys. My name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here at Huntington Community Church. Well, this morning, we are in chapter 9 of Revelation. And as we read chapter 9 together, it's going to feel like we're watching or you're reading from like J.R. Tolkien, like some kind of like about the Middle Earth or something. Like it's just, it's really strange. There's some strange creatures that appear on the scene in chapter 9. So let's, as you're turning there, let's quickly recap where we've been. So Revelation 1, man, that was such a beautiful chapter. It told us that those who read aloud from this book are blessed. So just understand, while I read chapter 9 in a minute, you are blessed just from hearing those words read aloud, okay? So there's this promise of a blessing for those who read from this book. We don't find that anywhere else in all of Scripture. The other 65 books don't make that promise to us. This book does. In chapters 2 and 3, we have these seven letters written to the seven churches. In chapter 4, Jesus told John that he was going to show him what soon must take place. And all of that, that what must take place, begins in chapter 6. Jesus had taken the scroll from his father in chapter 5, which is this epic scene. And in chapter 6, he begins to open the, the seals of the scroll. Before the seventh seal is open, chapter 7 shows the people of God being sealed uh, that they won't be harmed by any of God's judgments. Chapter 8 begins with the opening of the seventh seal. Uh, then the angel offers up the prayers of God's people. The first six trumpets are blown in chapters 8 and 9. The first four are in chapter 8. Then the fifth and sixth we'll see today in chapter 9. Last week we saw in chapter 8 that the first four trumpet blasts brought judgments that impacted the entire world. Uh, the two trumpet blasts that we will see today in chapter 9 brings damage and death to mankind. So last week was against the world. It, it, it impacted like the water, if you remember that. This week we're going to see impact on mankind. The seventh trumpet blast doesn't come until chapter 11. So chapter 8 ended with this threefold woe. Remember the woe was something um, horrific that happens. This judgment that's coming. So there is this threefold woe that is to come upon all those who dwell on the earth. Chapter 9 begins with the blowing of the fifth trumpet which, which initiates this first woe. In chapter 9 we're going to see um, the Lord use Satan and his demons to carry out judgments on those who refuse to repent. So if you're taking notes today, the title for today is When God Uses Evil to Judge Evil. So let's read chapter 9 together and understand that um, God has made us a promise here that we are blessed just for reading this, this, uh, this passage. Verse 1 says this, And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of the scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree. 
but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. The noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing in the battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns, the, go- the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore the best plate, they wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means... Of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorcerers or their sexual morality or their thefts. Chapter 9. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your promises that, that we are blessed today just, um, just by reading aloud um, these words. Uh, Lord, as strange they are, we know that these words are true. So Lord, I pray that you would um, soften our hearts to hear from you, that, um, that, we would, um, that we would not have this description um, about us, um, that our hearts wouldn't be so hardened that even though we see these kind of events happening, that we would not uh, repent of our sin. Uh, so Lord, I pray that um, you'd grant us the grace to repent and confess our sin and cling to you. Lord, we thank you for, um, for your sealing, that, that you seal us um, for the day of redemption. So we thank you for your Holy Spirit, how he's at work in our lives. Pray you give us ears to hear from you this morning. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, it's 
strange passage. This is kind of what we think when we think of Revelation. Uh, we think, you know, these kind of, um, these verses, um, just kind of strange and out there, a lot of speculation of what they mean. So let's slow down this morning. Let's walk through this passage together. We'll, we pick up in verse 1. We see this fifth angel who sounds the fifth trumpet. Verse 1, and the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Well, last week we saw something similar in chapter 8. We saw another star fall from heaven, if you remember that, and its, its name was Wormwood. Uh, that star made the water turn bitter, and it was unable to drink. Here in chapter 9, we see another star fall from heaven. Notice how this star is personified by John. You see language like, he was given. He opened the shaft. Most hold to this fallen star being a reference to Satan. Satan was an angel who was thrown down from heaven. Luke chapter 10, verse 18 could be a reference to this event in chapter 9. Luke 10, verse 18 says this, And he, Jesus, said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So this could be a reference, this could be another perspective of what's happening here in chapter 9. Once again, we see like this language of divine passive here in this verse. We see phrases like, the star was given. Um, He was given the key to the shaft um, of the bottomless pit. Um, This is actually very similar language to what we see in chapter 20 when we get there, where another angel comes down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit. Um, And I think what this should remind us of is that Jesus is in complete control. Um, We need to remember what Jesus said of himself back in chapter 1. Back in chapter 1, Jesus said, I have the keys of death and Hades. Just because Satan has a key um, here, um, if this is Satan, it doesn't mean that he's now in charge. Um, He's been given the key, but apparently the Lord at some point changed the locks, and in chapter 20 gives the key to another angel. It's also important to keep in mind, as the great reformer Martin Luther said, the devil is still God's devil. So that's important for us. Um, the point Luther is making about Satan is that, that, that he is both evil and powerful, but he is still under the authority of the sovereign Lord. There's only one sovereign God, and the devil is not that God. So it might seem like he's in charge here, but he's not. The important truth for us is that ultimately nothing happens apart from the sovereign determination of God. Nothing. And when it comes to evil and the wicked... The destructive devices of Satan, his demons, and even human beings, we see God using evil to judge evil, and he is rightly glorified in doing so. This bottomless pit here in chapter 9 is the same pit where Satan will be locked up in in chapter 20, but here we see Satan given the key to this bottomless pit, and he opened the shaft of this bottomless pit. And from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with smoke from the shaft. So if you've seen the past two chapters, we've seen like this play 
on Revelation and um, the coming out of Egypt um, with the plagues. And so here this, this idea of darkness takes us back to that ninth plague with the darkness in Egypt. In verse 3, we see the results of this bottomless pit being open. Verse 3, then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power, like the power of the scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So Satan was given the key to the pit, and now these locusts were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. This is interesting. They were told not to harm, and they obeyed. They were told to harm, and once again they obeyed. These creepy-looking agents of God's judgments will not go any farther than God allows them and intends them to go. But God's judgment does not come upon his children, if you notice that. They are marked by God and protected from evil. His judgment upon those who dwell on the earth is holy and just for how mankind has rebelled against him. But for those who have the seal of God upon them, God's judgment for your sin has already come. God poured out his wrath upon his very own son. Christ took the wrath that you and I deserve. Christ taking our place is why God gave us this seal to protect us. God's wrath against us has already been satisfied. So we have been sealed. We are protected from this wrath. What we see from chapter 9 is having the seal of God on your forehead is for your great benefit. The seal of God is the only thing that keeps great pain and suffering upon mankind. So being marked by God, and we've talked about this. This is not an actual mark. It's not like when you say a prayer and you be baptized, we don't, you know, tattoo something on your forehead. This is a marking of God that, that everybody can see you belong to him. And so that's where we are in chapter 9. As we will see um, in a few weeks, Satan's going to try to counterfeit this seal. But the only thing that protects us is is God's marking on us. Not finances, not, not, not your race, not heritage, but only the seal of God, which comes through Jesus Christ, taking your wrath. That's what protects you. That's the only thing um, that's going to matter when it's all said and done. So Satan, he has this counterfeit seal with this number of the beast, and he will do his best to make life miserable for those who do not have the mark. But no, if you're in Christ this morning, you have been covered. You've been sealed for the day of redemption. So these locusts, I want you to notice this. They left their normal diet in order to harm those who are not children of God. In verse 5, we, we see that not only do these locusts know who to harm and who not to harm, they even knew how long to harm them. Look down in your Bibles to verse 5. Verse 5 says, They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death 
and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. These locusts were given permission to torment humans who did not have the mark of God. Now look how specific these details are here. They could harm them, but not kill them. They could only harm them, but could only harm them for five months. Not four months, not six months, but only five months. That's interesting. Why five months? Well, some scholars will say that this makes sense because five months is the average lifespan of a typical locust. I want to ask these scholars if the typical locust can sting like a scorpion. I want to ask these scholars if the typical locust can harm people so badly that they are crying out for death. I want to ask these scholars if the typical locust can perfectly identify a Christian from a non-Christian. My point is, these don't sound like typical locusts. The simple answer for us this morning that why these locusts can harm for five months is because that's what God told them to do. But I will say this, though. I, I, I wish we kind of wish we had these locusts around today, don't you? It wouldn't it be nice to know who the true believers are? I mean, if you walked into church and you saw stings on the pastor, you'd be like, I think I'm going to find another church. (laughs) You know, if you saw your spouse with sting marks, it'd be time to do what? No, it's not time to find another wife. It's time to evangelize your spouse. I want you to see the irony of these first nine chapters. Back in chapters two and three in these seven letters, Satan makes the servants of God miserable. Remember all the, all the suffering they face? They were dying. They were being persecuted for their faith. Here in chapter 9, God makes the servants of Satan miserable. God will comfort and sustain his people. But Satan will only abuse and despise his people. The children of Satan will beg and long for death, but it will flee from them. Think about this. People have been trying to avoid death since the beginning of time. Now these individuals are begging to die, but can't. When God's judgments begin to fall, you will want to have the seal of God on your forehead. Maybe you're nervous this morning. Maybe you're nervous, maybe, maybe you're someone who struggles with salvation, of, um, just are, are, you, are you one of these people um, that you may have to face the wrath of God? And this morning, just right now, you don't have to wait till the end of the message for this, you know, for this altar call, right now, just confess your sin to God, right now, confess, turn from your sin. Believe, trust in Jesus. Pray for God to show you mercy. Ask him to seal you with his Holy Spirit. Just right now. You can give your life to him right now. But if you refuse to repent of your sin, then please realize this horrific picture that we see here in this chapter, this stuff's waiting for you. Over the next few verses, these locusts, they're... They're, they're described with greater detail. Look, look down to verse 7. Verse 7, in appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their 
Faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. The noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing in the battle. They had tails and stings like scorpions. And their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed, behold, two woes are to come. This is the part for me that sounds something like Lord of the Rings. I feel like I'm just watching one of those epic battle scenes in Lord of the Rings. The, the added detail here where the locusts were like horses prepared for battle means they were strong and swift. When their heads were what looked like crowns of gold, this showed that they had power and authority. Their faces were like human faces. This showed that they were highly intelligent. We see on their wings that uh, their wings were like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing in the battle. Uh, This is where you can read in, in many books or commentaries about how maybe John, remember he's He's seeing all this unfold from a first century's perspective. This is where some people think that maybe John was describing helicopters but didn't know what a helicopter was, and so he's describing this. Now, helicopter is extremely loud. Um, It would have been especially loud being a first century Jew who's never heard amplification of like a motor before, so this would have been extremely loud. Like, what in the world is this? Um, It's also the mentioning of their... Sting is in their tail, so this could be a reference to like missiles on a helicopter, you know, causing destruction upon the earth. Let me just step back from this and just say, we have absolutely no way of knowing to confirm this if this is true or not, right? All we have is a first century letter from John describing these events. I just want to warn us, let's not read Revelation from an American mindset, or from this period of life, right? Um, This could be something, you know, I'm sure if you're reading this from 1500 AD, you would have thought it was something else that John wouldn't have known about, and now we're doing the same thing, you know, in 2021. And, you know, if the Lord tarries and we're in, you know, 2200, there's going to be something else that that generation is going to say what these locusts are. So let's be careful with that, but just know that this is a devastating scene in humanity. So what we do know here is that God's judgment, it's painful, it's terrifying, and only those whom God seals will be protected from this judgment. Your only hope is to repent of your sin and trust in Christ. That's it. There's only two groups of people on this day Those who are marked by God and those who are not. And the way you get the mark is by repenting of your sin, trusting in Christ, that he is the way. It's not by your church attendance. It's not by how much you've given to charities. It's not how much you've helped other people. It's by trusting in Christ that he died for your sin. That's how you get the mark of God. Here we see in verse 11 that these locusts, they have another king. Their king, he's an angel from the bottomless pit. And their king has a name. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. 
And in Greek, he is called Apollyon. So they have a king. So there's this epic battle that's taking place, good versus evil. There's another king mentioned in the book of Revelation. Back in chapter 1, verse 5, we read, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth. Later in chapter 19, verse 16, we see another reference to Jesus as king. Verse 16, chapter 19 says this, And on his robe, him being Jesus, and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is the king of all kings. So even though the locusts have a king, the king of the locusts also has a king, and his name is Jesus. The Hebrew word Abaddon appears six times in the Old Testament. and comes from a word that means um, to perish, to destroy, to kill. Apollyon, the Greek version of Abaddon, it's only found um, here as like a proper noun. Apollyon also has this idea of one who destroys. So the locusts have a king who kills and destroys, but we have a king who is mighty to save, who gives life. Verse 12, we see that the first woe has passed. Behold, two more woes are still to come. I want you to just think about that for a moment. Think about how dreadful this is. People are begging to die. And this is just the first woe. There's still two more to come. If this doesn't stir your heart for missions, if this doesn't stir your heart to share the gospel with people you care about, I don't know what will. Verse 13 brings the second woe. The sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. Here we see the releasing of four angels who are bound at the river Euphrates. Some people believe that these angels are actually fallen angels or what we would maybe more commonly call demons because they were released and they had been bound at the river. So phrase like being bound seems like it, it's a strange way to refer to angels. Might might be fallen angels. At the end of the day, it really doesn't matter if these are angels or demons. What the book of Revelation is reminding us is that all creatures, angels and demons, are all underneath the rule and reign of God. Now look how precise, verse 15, you see the role of these angels. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year. I mean, these angels, it seems like this is what they had been prepared to do for such a time as this. This was not an accident. God did not become angry at mankind and just snap. Maybe some of you, you kind of have like, you're like the light switch. Some of you, you're like a dimmer. 
you just, you get angry, you just, it's just slow, like, you keep, keep pushing those buttons, buddy, and you're like a dimmer. Some of you are like a light switch. God is not that. It's not he just didn't wake up one day and see humanity like, what is going on? This was not rage. This was justice. God has left nothing to chance. These events are taking place exactly when God has appointed them to take place. In verses 3 through 11, we saw locusts bringing about the first woe. And now here in verses 13 through 19, we see these angels bringing in this army. We see the vastness of this army in verse 16. Look at this. And the number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates of color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And the fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like the serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. This scene is absolutely terrifying. Again, I'm just like waiting for Frodo to walk by and drop the ring into the bottomless pit. I mean, this is... This is Horrific. This is a huge army. So again, like my mind, I think of like Lord of the Rings, those big army scenes of all the horrific creatures coming by. Twice 10,000 times 10,000, if my math is correct, this is 200 million soldiers. A third of mankind was killed. One in every three is dead. You know, we've been thinking a lot about death tolls this past year. There's nothing ever like this in human history. This death toll will not be in the millions. It'll be in the billions. We see in verse 19 that those who are fortunate enough to survive, many of them will be wounded from the sting of the horse's tail. So you think like you survive, but you get these horses, like these sting-like from their tails, wounding you. God's judgment is painful and terrifying. Just remind you again that only those who have God's seal will be protected from that judgment. Now put yourself in this situation for a moment. You don't have the seal of God. You see all this death and destruction. And, and not just you see it, but at some point you begin to smell it. There's no way you're burying all these people. So you have all this smell and sight of what's going on around you. You would think surely this would lead people to repent, to cry out for God's help. God, please spare me. Well, let's keep reading and see what happens. Verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. They did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols and gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, 
which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor do they repent of their murders or their sorcerers, sorceries or their sexual morality or their thefts. This is, this is insane. If you're summarizing chapter 9, chapter 9, you see the sovereignty of God is on full display. I mean, he's in control. He's given keys. He's given power. He's judging the world. He's using evil to judge it. And how amazing or how sad it is in the face of all this destruction, all this pain and suffering, death, humanity still just shakes its fist at God and refuses to repent. You would think this devastation would lead people to repentance. I mean, that's kind of the point of tragedy. Tragedies that we go through are often intended to reveal God to us, that we see God in in the valleys. I don't know how many of you have ever read The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis. I, I think he completely you know, just nails this point here. C.S. Lewis says this, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. But that's not the reality here in chapter 9. Here we see individuals who are so hardened in their heart that they would not repent. They want to be delivered, but their gods will never be able to deliver them because they can't walk or see or talk. The gods of these unrepented men has not delivered them from the judgments of the living God. And their deeds have brought God's wrath upon their heads. And what's so sad and troubling is that they still cling to their addictions and their bondage. They refuse to turn from the very things that ruin their lives. But my goodness, don't we see people doing the same thing today? It's like once the heart goes down a path for so long, it becomes so hardened towards the love and mercies of God that not even a death of the entire population will lead people to repentance. To me, what this sounds like, if you can kind of parallel this, I wonder, is Romans chapter 1. I wonder if Revelation 9 may be what Paul was writing about at the end of Romans chapter 1. At the end of Romans chapter 1, Paul writes this. And since they, and I wonder if that's they, this, this group of people in chapter 9 of Revelation... And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Interesting list, isn't it? It's interesting how you see things like murder, haters of God, 
inventors of evil. Then you've got disobedient to parents. All in the same list. Verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. It's frightening. They know what's right. They know what's wrong. And they continue to approve the things that are wrong. Things that God says don't do, they just continue to say do them, do those things, even though they know it's wrong. We read back in chapter 9 and in verse 20 where these men did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual morality or their thefts. The word sorceries here might seem strange to us. Like who in the world doesn't, like we don't really see sorcerers. You know, it might be again Lord of the Rings kind of language. But here the, the Greek word, it's interesting, it's pharmacon. It's the word that we use for like pharmacy or pharmaceuticals. So this could be that they did not repent of their drug use. Some of us have family or friends who struggle with this addiction. If you've ever seen someone battle drug addiction, then this passage might make sense to you. You, you see someone who, man, they just keep going down the same path. You might be able to understand and empathize with the person that could see so much tragedy around them and know what they're doing is wrong, but they still keep choosing that crutch. The word for sexual morality here is pornea. This refers to all forms of sexual sin that occurs outside of marriage. Pharmacon pornea. 2,000 years later, and we're still battling the addictions of drugs and porn. It's amazing how people refuse to turn from the very things that ruin their lives. But that's what sin does. This is the great deception of sin. Sin deceives us by telling us that God is holding something better back from us. It's the same thing that happened in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve thought that God was holding something better back from them. But God is not withholding pleasure from us by telling us not to commit adultery or to not be sexually immoral. He wants us to enjoy pure, undefiled sexual fulfillment within the context of a biblical marriage of one man and one woman joined as one flesh. He has designed that. Mentions here about, you know, someone turn away from being thieves. God is not forcing us into poverty by telling us not to be thieves. He wants us to be content with what he's given us, to know that he can meet all of our needs. God is not withholding good from us. In fact, he has lavished upon us his riches in Christ. God has given us his very best by giving us his son. God is calling us to trust him that true life is found in him and not in the things of this world, things that cannot see or hear or walk. The question today is, 
Will you trust him? Will you trust him today with your life? That means will you surrender? That you no longer have the key. You're no longer in charge. You're not the authority of your life. Will you hand it over to him? Will you trust him today that he's at work in people that he's put around you, across the street, in your family, at work, at school? Will you trust that he's at work in them, that he's trying to draw them to him, and he's using you to share the good news of Jesus? Will you trust him? Let's be bold this week and live on mission. And let's tell someone about the hope that we find here in Jesus, the King of all kings, before it's too late. As the band comes back up to lead us in song, let me, let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we know that there's only one true king. His name is not Abaddon. His name is not Apollyon. His name is Jesus. He is the one that saves. He is the one that gives life. And so we thank you, Lord Jesus, for that life. We thank you that you have sealed us, that you are doing a work in our lives. And I pray, Lord, that we would be a people on mission, that you have called us out of the world to go back into the world and preach your good news. Lord, we know this day's coming. And I pray that you would stir our hearts for those around us who do not know you. Or may we, may we lay in bed tonight and just weep over the family members and friends that we have that don't know you, that may face your wrath if you were to come today. So, Lord, give us boldness, break our hearts to share the good news. Lord, we pray that you would soften those, those hearts, that they would receive your message, they would repent and trust in you, and they would be sealed. So Lord, we thank you for saving us, for not just taking us right to heaven, that you've left us here in this world, even though it's broken, it's hard to be here at times, but you left us here so we can be ambassadors, so we can tell others about you. So may we not waste these opportunities. May we not waste this week. May we not gather again next Sunday without telling someone about you, the hope that we found in you. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.